You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. Right. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12 and give it up for Pilgrim. Killing me. Well, good evening, Redemption. It's good to see you all. It's good to be here. Uh, as Pastor Daniel said, let's open to Exodus chapter 12. And uh, thank you for having me this evening. Uh, my home church, Shoreline in Bradenton, sends you their greetings. And uh, since this is being recorded, I might as well just return the favor. Uh, love your pastor. I'm so thankful for Daniel and Laura and their friendship uh, and their, um, just their encouragement. They pray for you as a fellowship often. Uh, they speak highly of you. They love you. Uh, and I know that we as a family pray for them and we pray for you as well. One of the prayers that I pray, uh, if you just want to jot this down and look at it later, is Ephesians chapter 3. I, I, when I think of you, when I think of Pastor Daniel, I pray that where Paul says, according to the riches of his glory, that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart's through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, it's a long prayer, but that's what I pray for your pastor and for you as a fellowship. So, uh, to that end, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Spirit of God to strengthen us as we study God's Word together. Father, we're grateful that you have not left us as orphans, but you have sent your son to be our redemption. And yet, as Jesus ascended, we know that he didn't either leave us as orphans. He, with the Father, sent the Spirit, who is our comforter, who is the one who reminds us of the words of Jesus, who illuminates and teaches our hearts. So, Holy Spirit, we're asking tonight that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would allow us to lean into this text in the Old Testament, a text that really under it and over it are incredibly painful and difficult judgment. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that judgment, as we see throughout Scripture, you are still a God of mercy. You're a God who has provided redemption. And so, Lord, we pray that you would illuminate this text by the Spirit, encourage us, instruct us, uh, Lord, we pray that tonight we'd walk away not the same, because that would be uh, an empty endeavor. Lord, we want to walk away transformed by the strength of the Spirit, because we've reflected on the Word of God and the person of Christ in your Word. So uh, we just thank you so much that your Word is alive, and we ask now uh, that it would cut joints and marrow, it would divide soul and spirit, and it would judge the attitudes and the intentions of our heart, and it would bring about the fruit that we need the Spirit of God to bring about in our life. So that's a big ask, but Lord, we pray that you will do it because we know you can. So we trust you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So over the course of our lives, I want you to think about how many meals you have probably eaten since you've been alive. Now, uh, my daughter's here. My daughter's around 15, and so her answer is going to be a lot less than mine, except if you count snacking on the weekends. That's going to add up. Uh, but you think about it, the meals that you've had throughout the course of your life, many, if not most of those have been un, 
uninspiring, unexciting, very normal, sort of drab, the, uh, the occasional meal in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, uh, and nothing really stands out. Maybe in college, it was the ramen cup, and you went, you went for it, and you added a little bit of uh, Tabasco sauce to your ramen. Uh, in the morning, maybe it was just your, your basic toast and eggs. But uh, the unexciting meals don't stand out to us. And for me, growing up, we, we uh, used to celebrate one meal a year that was the meal of meals. And I think you know which one I'm talking about. It was the Thanksgiving dinner. The Thanksgiving dinner was the, the, uh, the culmination of, of all the good meals of the year, but it was the best meal. And it had everything that was what you'd consider a good meal. You have, of course, the big table. You have the extended family there. You've got all the food you don't normally eat from day to day. It's not a, on the normal Thursday that mom you know, whips up this huge, well-basted turkey. And there's all the little theories. I'm not going to get, you know, get in an argument with you guys about is it better to, to deep fry the turkey, which it is, uh, or is it better to, to oven roast the turkey or to bake the turkey? We won't get into that. But, but man, that's like the time you have the turkey. You have the cranberry. You have the, the stuffing and the green bean casserole and, of course, the pumpkin pie. So this is a special meal just in itself. We have the big table. We have Grandpa there, and Grandpa gets up. And he prays his prayer that could have been out of the entire book of Deuteronomy. Right? He's just, come on, Grandpa, get to the end, get to the amen. And then, of course, uh, at our family, at least, we'd go around the table and we would share one thing we're thankful for this year. And uh, as teenagers, we had to get, you know, had to be drawn out of us, but we're, we're sharing what we're thankful for. And then after the, the meal, after dinner, even though it was three o'clock, it was after dinner, and that, that post-meal was always the exciting time. You've got the, the cowboys and the lions on television. You've got grandpa now in his turkey coma. And you've got us in the backyard getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, by the way, my name is Pilgrim, so Thanksgiving was just my honorary holiday. Whether I wanted it to be or not, that's just what it was. But my point is, this was a meal. There was nothing like it in my family, nothing like it. Now, as we come to the book of Exodus chapter 12, we're going to see what is considered by Israel then and throughout time and even today to be the most important meal in their community. As a church, you've been studying the book of Exodus and you've been learning all about the judgments of God in what we call the plagues, the ten plagues. And we've seen these are judgments against Israel, against the people, or not against Israel, against Egypt. And God's people, Israel, have been, been underneath their captivity and you've been learning how their ruler, Pharaoh, had continued to harden his heart. We see where Yahweh hardens his heart, God hardens his heart, and then, and then Pharaoh's hardening his heart. And these nine plagues on the surface seem to be the stuff of Sunday school uh, quiz, where you're trying to remember, what were those ten plagues? Well, let's see, there's the, there's the water turning to blood, there's the, the frogs, I'm sure there were frogs, there was flies, and you're trying to remember all of them. Uh, there's lice in there, and there's boils, and, and yet it's easy for us to lose the impact of what those were intended to be. Those were intended not just as random plagues, well, there's, there's darkness in the land, but these were specific judgments of God's wrath against Egypt, against the false idol worship of Egypt. And it was a picture of his complete judgment against the false gods of Egypt. In fact, just one example, the darkness was a, a deep an abiding debasing of Ra, the sun god. Ra, the sun god, is now like basically uh, 
rendered inept. He's, he's unable to show his might. And so those plagues that you've been studying show that God will be worshiped. And when there's a barrier to the glory of God, he's not just going to sit by. He's not going to sit idly by as his glory is maligned. And even though you guys have gone through all of these plagues, um, there's chapter and chapter of plagues. You know, we should just go through all of them right now. No, we won't do that. We won't do that. But you've gone through them, and none of these awful nine plagues even slightly compare to what we're going to look at together tonight, this tenth and this final judgment. And this judgment, uh, all we have in chapter 11 as a heading, depending on your Bible translation, is a final plague threatened. We get a glimpse of that. You looked at that last week. And then tonight we see the Passover. But it's not until verse 29 that we see what this 10th plague is. And your heading should say something along the lines of death of the firstborn. And I I prayed it, but what we are going to see tonight in this text is even though this is going to be a very heavy judgment, even so, in wrath, God remembers mercy. Even with this 10th and this final judgment, God is going to give saved Israel a very visible sign, a sign that, that the other people can recognize. And this distinguishes them from condemned Egypt. And this sign, this visible uh, reminder, is going to actually be accompanied with a meal. And this meal is going to mark Israel's calendar, not just then, but forever after. So this final plague is going to be the final means to, so to speak, break the camel's back and finally make Pharaoh relent and let God's people leave Egypt. It allows them to plunder the Egyptians, to get released from their bondage, and to finally do what this title of the book we're studying actually let them do, which is the exodus. It allows them to exit Egypt. So if you're taking notes, um, there's going to be four things that we look at tonight. I just can't help but I think in sections. So as we study scripture, I'm always thinking of, okay, well, what's the different, you know, different ways we can look at this? So there's four things we're going to see in the text tonight. And I'm also an English guy, so they all begin with an M. I just, I can't help it. That's how I roll. But uh, the first thing we're going to see is we have a lot of ground to cover because Daniel doesn't like me, and so he assigned me a very long passage, 32 verses. My goodness. So, so, oh, okay. So he, yeah, you're up for it then. But look how short chapter 11 is. So, uh, so we're going to see first the method, the method of this judgment, verses 1 through 13. We're going to see the memorial, verses 14 through 20. It's not just that evening. It's a memorial. We'll see the actual moment of judgment, verses 21 through 28, and then the aftermath or the mourning in verses 29 through 32. Now, even though we're going to get a a better understanding, hopefully, of this final plague, uh, I don't want to steal too much of Pastor Robin's thunder, but we are going to get a glimpse of how this Passover foreshadows a more universal and threatening wrath. Not merely the death of the firstborn, but spiritual death and separation from God that is not just an end of our life, but an end for all of eternity. But what we'll also see is like the slain lamb of this Passover, there's a true and greater sacrifice for God's people, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we're going to see before we conclude tonight that the Passover is one of just five very important meals in history. 
and we'll see what meal we're still waiting for in anticipation for the future. So let's start with verse one with the method. Notice it says, the Lord, that's his name. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Up until this point, they're really following, you could say an aimless calendar, an Egyptian calendar, but now God marks this particular time says this is now the beginning of your calendar you're distinct you're a you're a called out people you're a holy nation and now you're going to mark your calendars starting today so this is essentially the end of march or the beginning of april uh, and it's known as the month of nisan that has nothing to do with cars but that's the month of nisan and it was a name that actually originated from babylon and so that's actually going to have that name later on in israel's uh, history. So this is to mark their calendars from here on out. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. So, so far, I want you to be tracking if I were giving you instructions, and some of you have different, maybe different Bible translations, but so far from verses three to five, or three and four, there's a few things we're supposed to do. So if you just look back with me, it's supposed to be on the 10th day, so mark that, okay, day one, day 10. Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, so with each household, with each structure and home, we are to take a lamb for that home. There might be extended family, great-grandparents, but within that household, we, we need a lamb. Okay, and then notice verse 5. The lamb needs to be without blemish. So that essentially means it can't be a lamb uh, that's about to die. It can't, if you have the two lambs there and you're like, okay, here's one lamb, and he looks great. He looks ready to go. He's, he's like a really awesome year-old lamb. And then the second one is like, well, he's limping. He's got a lot of blemishes and defects. Uh, he's, he's got some cancer. He's not going to make it much longer. So that's the Lord's lamb. You know, that's not the idea. The idea is you are to take the one that's unblemished. So, so far, uh, we see also that you're to take a male a year old. So it's not a baby lamb. It's not an older goat. Verse 5, he goes on to say, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So this can be one of the two. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So you take it on the 10th day, save it for four days. And then he says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, so... In other words, it's going to cost you something, and there's specific instructions for each household with this lamb. And notice with me, the end of verse 6 says the, this phrase, the whole assembly of the congregation. That's a very fascinating word that we find just right here in the middle of Exodus. That word, uh, that phrase is the first time we see this in Scripture. And when you translate that in the Greek, it's where we get the word church from. It's very fascinating that we find that here referring to Israel. Uh, now, if you look down just real quick with me, down to verse 19, you'll see that it says, that person, if they eat what is unleavened, they'll be cut off from, here it is again, the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. Now, that's just interesting to me because 
in a, in a parallel way, we are the congregation of God. We are the church. We're the called out ones uh, that are the people of God. And even within a church, within a, a local church, you have the members of the church who are in Christ. And then you'll have visitors, and you know, people that are a part of that, that group. And so I just find it very interesting that uh, he's using this same terminology that he uses with the church to describe this assembly, this, this gathering of Israel. But this is a very special moment. This is a, a moment where God is saying, I am now marking my people, the ones that I've called out among the nations, out of Egypt. And I'm going to now work in a very peculiar, very specific, particular way with these people. And do you know, this is, you guys would love this. Do you know that the, the word that modern day non-Christ-believing Jews, so these would be Jews that are not Christians who don't receive Jesus as Messiah. Do you know the word that they use to describe this particular chapter that we're reading about in this particular feast? You'll love this because they would use the word redemption. <laughs> they would say that this is a picture of God redeeming his people. It's a picture of redemption. And so I just thought you'd like that word because, I don't know, you're <laughs> named Redemption Church. So look at verse 7 with me. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood. So the, the lamb is there. The lamb is slain at twilight. They take, he says, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. In our vernacular, you might say your keys in your pocket or keys in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So if you're following with me, the instructions continue. We're already good so far, but now we're to drain the blood from the animal. We're to take it and smear it on the sides and the tops of the doorposts of the home. And then they were to roast the entire animal. There was to be none left over to the morning, but if it was left over, you're to burn it. Don't eat leftovers in the morning. In fact, you're to eat it with unleavened bread, which we'll get to in a minute, and bitter herbs. The bitter herbs were a sign of the bitterness, the cruelty that the Israelites had to live as they were uh, in the oppression of Egypt. And so no, not only that, but you're to, you're to eat it ready to run with your belt fastened, your sandals on, your staff in your hand. This is a quick, this is a standing meeting. We're going to have a quick meal here and then we're going to be heading out. Now here's what was going to happen, verse 12. This seems... You know, Moses is tracking so far, like, this is odd, but okay, we're going to go with it. Well, here's what's going to happen, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. We know the Egyptians had this great... Uh, view of great in their minds, great view of the afterlife. There was a, there was a, a great uh, seeking of preserving life. And here God is taking life. He's executing judgment in these plagues against the false gods of Egypt. And he is reminding them, I am the Lord. 
That's been the whole theme of Exodus. I want them to know who I am. I am the Lord. I am that I am. And then he says in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the blood will be a sign, just like the rainbow is a sign of God's covenant promise to Noah, just like circumcision is a sign to Israel that he would be setting them apart from all other people. This blood is a sign, it's a picture that when man looks at it, he says, I don't get that, I don't understand it, but I know it saves. When God looks at it, he says, I see, I remember, and I save. But notice with me that it says that in verse 12, he'll strike the firstborn. I want you to circle that word firstborn. It's not just that you were the oldest in the family, which I happen to be the oldest son. And uh, just for show of hands, who is the firstborn of your family? Just want to see the firstborn of your family. All right, great. So we would be at risk of death in this particular um, judgment. But the firstborn is more than just you're the oldest in the family. It's actually a title that signifies who carries the family, who represents the family name. The firstborn in the family is the preeminent one, the one arguably of first importance. I kind of like that, actually. I let my younger sister and brother know that. I'm the firstborn, the preeminent one, just so you guys know. That's me. But think about what's about to occur. The firstborn of each and every family, you just raised your hand, was to be cut off. They were to be put to death. It's almost as if God's way of saying the evil system of idol worship and oppression in Egypt will come to an end, and it'll come to an end in the night. Now, it wasn't just the firstborn babies, the firstborn children, the firstborn teenagers. No, it's all the firstborn. It's not only the firstborn humans, but even the beasts that would be struck. And as you'll see next week, I'm sure you'll get into this next week, this grief that Egypt experiences is what will allow Israel to plunder them. Now, this was not just a, a one and done. This was to be a memorial. So let's look at the second section and how this continues even to this day. Verse 14 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So this was not just a one and done. This is something God's setting up as a template to be done annually. Every time it's in that first month on the 14th day, they're to remember. Now, when you look at Israel, there's, we're not going to go into these, but there's seven feasts in the scripture that Israel commemorates. And each one of these are a different aspect of God's faithfulness. But this Passover feast is the foundational one. In fact, I'd love for you to jot down Leviticus 23, verses 4 and 5. I'll put it on the screen, I think. But this says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So we see that in the law of Moses being reiterated as it's starting here. And that same chapter, Leviticus 23, goes on to list these other six feasts. So you may have heard of these, the Feast of first fruits, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, you've heard of that, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of uh, Tabernacles or Booths. 
And so that's a fascinating study. Actually, I encourage you to go look those up and, and the parallels that we see in the New Testament. It's pretty cool. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place right after the Feast of Passover. And we see that here in verse 15. So we've got this, uh, this moment of Passover, but now we've got something continuing on. So right after that, notice verse 15. He says, for a week, for seven days, you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Sounds a little extreme, but there's a reason. He says in verse 16, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. And then he says, No work shall be done on those days. Those are days of rest. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. So, we have the unleavened bread. They're not to eat bread with leaven in it for a week. And this was a picture of purity. So throughout Scripture, leaven is something you, you add to bread. And when you add just a little pinch to it, I'm not a baker, by the way, but if you add just a little pinch of leaven, it leavens the whole lump. It, it spreads and permeates. Um, it's an outside influence that comes in and, and infiltrates every part. And so I'm trying to think what would be a good example in Florida. Um, sand. All right, so if you've been to the beach, you go to the beach, and just, you're just there for a half hour, and you go to leave, and what happens? There's sand on your feet, there's sand in your sandals, there's sand in the car, there's sand in your food. It's just, it's everywhere. It just, it's a little tiny bit that pervades into everything. And the New Testament speaks of this idea. I've just jot this down, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says this to this very confused and a sinful church in Corinth. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. It's a picture in the Bible of, of, of purity, that God's people aren't to be influenced with even just a little bit of outside influence. And so God wants them to be pure, but this is also a picture of the manna that they were about to eat in the wilderness. This is a picture of where they're about to go, their reliance upon God. Now look at verse 17. It says, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations, not just once, but as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. So we have a week of this specific type of bread. Verse 19, for seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. And he's almost repeating himself here. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off. Here's that word again. The, from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. And so not only do we have the Passover, we also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread put together with it as a memorial for all time. Even today, Jews continue to keep the Passover or Pesach, however you pronounce it. But now is the moment. Now we're here at the moment. And so let's look at this third section. We move from the command to the crisis, from future tense to present tense. God has been saying, here's what's going to happen. Now here we are. It's happening. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, 
Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Remember what the Passover lamb is? Anyone remember how old is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a year old. Is it supposed to be blemished, unblemished? Pretty clear. All right, so kill the, the Passover lamb. Then verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin so it's been drained. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will, here's where we get the word, will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Did you catch that? The destroyer wouldn't only take the life of the firstborn Egyptian. No, he would take the life of anyone whose home was not covered by the blood of the spotless lamb. Anyone, Egypt, Israel, sojourner, native, if the blood didn't cover the door, the destroyer would take the life. So notice verse 24. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. This is still Moses. He's relaying Yahweh's command. He's doing a good job. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So he tells them, you're to remember this in the next generation. Notice the response. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So this is great. This is to be passed down from this particular generation on to the next generation. Moses says, when your children, so I'm not even going to be there with you guys, eventually pass it down. When the children ask, why are we killing the lamb? Why are we roasting the lamb, dad? Why are we draining the blood, mom? Why are we wiping the doorposts of the lentil? Why are we eating it with herbs that are bitter and with bread that has no leaven in it? Why are we doing this? He says, you're to, in that moment, teach your children the reality of redemption. I love that you guys are emphasizing the importance of children, the importance of youth. Many people say, you know, the, the young people, the next generation is the, the church of tomorrow. And I like to say, no, they're the church of today. They're the whole assembly. They're a part of who we are. They're a part of the church. And Deuteronomy 6 says that, that we are to train our children in the ways of God everywhere. When we're walking in and out of the gates, when we're in our homes, as we're on the way, we're to talk about the things of God. And my wife, Jen, and I have found that that's the most natural way to share the gospel with our kids, to, to talk about the things of the Lord. Not to, I mean, there is time for this, but not just to sit them down on Sunday nights and say, okay, kids, we just went to church. Now tell me what you learned, you know, and that sort of thing. We, we may have done that from time to time, and it worked great. Um, but it's much more effective as you're driving along the road and you're your kids in the back seat in the car seat just asking, you know, how is God everywhere? Who, who is Jesus? How is there a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And you go, I don't know, actually. That's a good question. I need a commentary to answer you. 
But see, that's, that's practicing this model that Moses is leaving uh, for the elders to talk about the Lord, talk about the gospel when these things get brought up. Why do we do this? Why do we do the, these things in this way? Uh, it's to bring about uh, the, the truth of God. So the elders were to set this example and not a single household in the land that night would be safe apart from the shed blood of the unblemished lamb. Now let's look at this last section and we know what happens, but let's, let's uh, read about it anyway. We can't take all of our theology from Prince of Egypt on Disney. Okay, we have to actually read the text. It's a, actually a pretty accurate movie, but we have to read the text. So verse 29 says, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And this is telling from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Didn't matter if you were great or small, the wrath of God is no respecter of persons. No one could or can escape the judgment of God. Notice with me, there's only one means of redemption. There's only one way of salvation. It didn't matter if you were a nice guy, if you cut your lawn, if you flossed your teeth, if you were an upstanding citizen who voted and paid your taxes on time. There's only one way to be saved. Well, it says, verse 30, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, like any of us would if there's a death, imminent death in the family. And there was a great cry in Egypt. That's an understatement. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Again, every uncovered home where a first, firstborn person or beast resided, there was death. Now, up until this point, you've been reading this, you've been studying this, God has been hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh has been helping him finish the job. He has hardened his own heart. But now in his grief, he seems to give up and to give in. Verse 31. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and he said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and take your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And then I don't understand why he says this. He says, and bless me also. Uh, so obviously, there's a little bit of acknowledgement of the God of Israel uh, seeking a blessing even in the midst of death. Now, you'll see this in a future study. Spoiler alert, Pharaoh will change his mind again uh, and will pursue Israel. But for now, he and his servants and his friends and his relatives, they're all mourning the loss of someone they love. Perhaps many people that they love in this humiliating and sobering judgment. Now, God to his people in this moment has been faithful, as we just sang about. He's been faithful to keep his word. He's been faithful to raise up a deliverer in Moses, to redeem his people from death, to save them and secure them under the blood. And now truly begins their exodus. In fact, the heading above verse 33 is the exodus. Now their long and faithful journey in through the wilderness and eventually into the land of promise will happen. But it, it all happened through, if you would, through this very uh, incredible and sobering judgment. Now, as we seek to apply this text, um, as a Christian, there are so many parallels. And again, I don't want to give away too much because you're going to participate in a Seder dinner, which is a great opportunity to see this visibly 
uh, or visually uh, displayed. So uh, I just want to apply this text from the scripture just for a minute. Um, and then we'll look at five important meals. So real quick, and I told you a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, but Paul goes on after the leaven unleavened talk to say Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So the apostles saw that this story is fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus is that spotless, unblemished lamb. In fact, other places in Scripture reveal to us that you were not to break a bone in the lamb's body. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus uh, was pierced in his hands and feet, and yet none of his bones were broken. In fact, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.18 says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, he says, but with the precious blood. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This speaks of Jesus' sinlessness before God. He was without blemish, without spot. So this Passover, think about it, it is an amazing picture of the gospel, that Jesus is our lamb, the lamb who was slain. His blood was shed, the wrath of God that we deserve passed over us not because we were good, outstanding citizens, but because solely because the blood of the Lamb. It's just an awesome picture. But it's not the only picture in the Bible of a meal. In fact, the gospel is actually laid out for us in five meals. And I'd love to just share these with you really quickly. I found these to be super fascinating in Bible study this week. So five important meals throughout human history. The first one was in the Garden of Eden. And this was the forbidden fruit. And the idea in the garden was eat and you'll die. So Adam and Eve, remember, they ate of the forbidden fruit. A lot of us argue, was it, a, was it an apple? We don't know if it was an apple. It doesn't say. It was probably a grapefruit because that should be forbidden. <clears throat> but they were not to eat of it. It was, it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not to eat of that. God had warned them, the day you eat of it, the day you have a meal of that fruit, you will surely die. You'll be separated from me. You'll have spiritual death. And we know what happened. In rebellion, they said, well, we'll choose what is good and right and true and beautiful. And they partook and now would define for themselves good from evil. And see, that rebellion continued even after the flood judgment and to the Tower of Babel and even to the nation. So eventually God calls Abram out and he calls his people, and as you've been studying, uh, he sets them apart. They eventually end up in Egypt in captivity, and that's the second meal we're looking at, which is the Passover. And this meal is eat and live. It's not eat and die, it's eat and live. If you'll eat this and you'll apply the blood, you will be saved. Eat and live. And this, of course, is a foreshadowing, as you'll see in the Seder dinner, of the third meal, which is the, the, uh, the Last Supper. And this meal is basically Jesus saying, eat, for I am about to die. You see, the Passover that Jesus partook with his disciples the night before he died on the cross, it was not just a, a ham sandwich dinner. This was, this was the, the Passover meal. We call it the Last Supper, but this is where Jesus promised the new covenant in his blood. And it's a meal that we continue to in a glimpse of that partake in today, the fourth meal, 
And that fourth meal is communion. And communion, we're going to partake in just a moment. That's where we as believers would say, eat and be joined to Christ's death and his life. Now, a lot of people get real stressed out about does the bread actually become the body of Christ? Does the, does the juice or wine actually become uh, the blood of Jesus? And I would just encourage you, if you're really strong and opinionated about that, see Pastor Daniel. He would love to talk to you about that. <laughs> but that incredible time we call communion is where God's people, we come together and, and we, in a figurative way, so to speak, we eat of the same bread, we drink of the same cup. This gives us fellowship with one another. And it reminds us who we are. We're not perfect. We're not sinless, but he is. And so when we eat the bread, we're reminded and we're proclaiming, not just remembering, but proclaiming Christ died, Christ has risen. It's something that we get to do joyfully every time or as much as we do it to have a visible sign of the gospel. And we demonstrate Christ died, Christ poured out his blood for me for us. It's a joyful thing that we continue to do. But there's one more meal that we have yet to partake in. And that fifth and final meal is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the idea here is that we should eat for death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. You can turn there or you can just look it up later. Revelation 19 verses 6 and 7 says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Here's the church crying out. We're singing together, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. We are, the church is the bride of Christ. We're joined together with the bridegroom. And one day yet, we'll be united with Jesus and we'll rejoice and we'll feast together in a meal way more glorious than any Thanksgiving meal you and I have ever had. It's a day we almost can't even fathom or imagine, a day of great joy and great feasting. Now, until that day, we do what Revelation 12, 11 says. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We live our lives as Christians overcoming by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ, the shed blood of God's Lamb. Now, we know, like Israel, that the wrath of God has passed over us because innocent blood was shed. And maybe this is your first time at church or you've never heard the gospel, but see, the good news is that though we were dead in our sins, though we were at enmity, we were enemies of God, the good news is that Jesus was the true and better Lamb of God. And He died so that you may live. But that doesn't happen just by default, any more than it happened here in the Passover. You see, we have to place the door above our own doorposts. We have to receive this finished work on our behalf. And that doesn't happen because mom or dad or grandpa or grandma were Christians. It doesn't happen by being a good person. It doesn't happen by church attendance or giving large sums of money or helping the poor. It doesn't happen with flossing your teeth or working out every day or the fact that you avoid gluten or dairy or meat in your diet. None of these will remove the coming wrath. You might say, well, I'm a good person. I attend church regularly. I read my Bible. I pray. I go on a million mission trips. But see, none of these things save. Like Israel on that fateful night, 
The only means of salvation is the blood, the blood of the spotless lamb. Have you received the work of Christ in your own life? You see, 2,000 years ago, God's only son came from heaven to earth and he lived a perfect life and he died an innocent death in place of the condemned. But we trust that he rose again triumphantly and he conquered sin and death and he redeemed those who repent of their sin and trust him for eternal salvation. Have you done that? Have you received Christ's finished work? Have you been made new, made alive by the work of Christ? Well, this evening, we invite you to respond, to turn from your sin and to turn to God. Don't let the forbidden fruit be the meal that defines you, but allow the last meal that we wait for be the one that defines you. Now, as a, as a Christian, maybe many of you are Christians or everyone here is a, a believer. That's awesome. And I just want to give us two things to walk home with. Hopefully you're not walking home, but if you uh, want to leave tonight, two things we can leave with, okay? And I think these speak to, to this uh, text. So take it from the Old Testament to uh, Delray Beach here in 2022. First, the believer. You need not fear death because God is with us. You look at those who are waiting that night and worrying as the destroyer. This is a real threat. Came by and then, did I do it right? Did I, did I, was it a year old lamb? Was it, I hope it was unblemished. I didn't break any bones. I made sure there was, was there enough blood? That night, I wonder if they were afraid for their very life. And we as believers, we can rest this evening knowing that God is with us. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, it basically speaks about that through death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been afraid of dying, of crossing the threshold from death to uh, eternal life. And I just want to encourage you, you and I, this is, sounds not encouraging, you and I will all die. Isn't that encouraging? We will all die, and yet the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So either with him in salvation or before him in judgment, as believers, we don't need to fear death. We can rest tonight because God is and he will be with us. The number one command in scripture is fear not. And it's always tied, almost always tied to the number one promise, which is I am with you. So fear not, believer. If you're afraid of death, trust that God is with you. Finally, number two, I want to encourage you tonight that you as a believer need not fear condemnation. Because Christ has saved us. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now, what is it? No condemnation. How much? None. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I as believers don't need to fear, oh, I hope the blood is enough. I hope the blood of Christ, I hope I did it right. Did I pray the right prayer? Did I do the, did I do the right thing? Will the blood hold? Will the destroying it, will I face the wrath of God? Now listen, the ground of your assurance this evening it's not in your fervor, even though you can be very filled with fervor. It's not in your own ability to obey. I wish it was. Actually, I'm glad it's not because my own ability to obey falls short. No, the ground of your assurance before God is his ability to save. Uh, I could say this in a really lame way, but there's a much better way of saying it. Um, I want to close our time in God's Word with uh, a sermon clip from a theologian named Don Carson, D.A. Carson. 
And uh, I pray that you'll find this clip as powerful and encouraging as I found it to be. Uh, but I was going to try to do this and say it and communicate it, and I thought, there's, there's no way. I just have to show the clip. That's just a much more powerful way. So I hope this is encouraging to you as it is to me. And again, thank you all for letting me come tonight to share God's word with you. Picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the, the lamb? And Daub the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel. Haven't you, you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and it's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. You got three sons. I've only got one. I'm, I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight. You, you, you know? I, I know what, what God says, and I put the blood there, but, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I, I tried hard, you know? I did, I did my best. It was, a, it was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Yes. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we, it's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube, so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. 
Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.